Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep herders, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me go in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at Enim, at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself! Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Here we read, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, 
and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportion to Babylon. And after the deportion to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportion of Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportion to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word this morning. I'm aware that some might think that Genesis 38 is a strange text to preach on the Sunday before Christmas. Maybe some of you are thinking that right now. It's a rather scandalous story that we find here, isn't it? And I will admit this story doesn't feel very Christmassy when we first read it. But I do hope that you can see that Genesis 38 is not altogether unrelated to the story of the birth of Jesus the Christ. Perhaps you notice that the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew 1 makes mention of the main characters of Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. Uh, listen again to Matthew 1, 1 through 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of who? Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. When Matthew set out to write his gospel concerning Jesus the Christ, he began not with the story of his birth, but with his genealogy. Matthew was concerned to demonstrate to his readers that Jesus was, in fact, the offspring of Abraham and David. This was very important, for Jesus could not possibly be the Christ, that is to say, the Messiah unless he descended from Abraham and David. For the Old Testament scriptures are very clear. The Christ would be born in the line of Abraham and David. And so Matthew does eventually tell that Christmas story that is familiar to us, but only after establishing the descent of Jesus from Abraham and David. Now after reading uh, the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, one might assume that Matthew would be eager to distance Jesus from this mess. You can see why he would be eager to do that. But instead, what does Matthew do? Instead of trying to distance Jesus from this very messy and scandalous story, he highlights the fact that Jesus' ancestors include Perez, who was born to Judah by Tamar, who was, in fact, Judah's daughter-in-law. Notice that Matthew in his genealogy of Jesus does not usually mention the women by whom such and such a person was born. Uh, typically it's only the fathers uh, who are mentioned. But here in Matthew 1.3 we read Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah. And then what does Matthew add? 
by Tamar, he says. It's almost as if he wants us to remember this story. It's almost as if he is bringing up the scandal. I've said already that one might expect Matthew to bury this unsavory story to distance Christ from the scandal, but instead he does the very opposite. He draws attention to the relationship. Not only was Judah the father of Perez, he could have just said that, by the way, and the genealogy would have been complete. He was the father of Perez by Tamar, Matthew says. In fact, there are four other instances in the genealogy of Jesus where Matthew mentions the mother of such and such a person. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, we are told. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, we are told. And Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So in each of these five instances, where the mother of such and such a person is mentioned, there is either some scandal associated with the person, or some surprising thing to be noted about the woman involved. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, by whom Perez and Zerah were born. That story, as we have seen, is scandalous. Rahab was a prostitute and a foreigner. She was not an Israelite. This is also scandalous and surprising. Ruth was a foreigner too, and so it is surprising to find that the line of the Messiah would run through her. Solomon was born to David by Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. This too is scandalous. And Jesus the Christ was born to Mary, who was a virgin betrothed to Joseph. A very surprising thing. And of course, we know what they were accused of at least. Um, they were accused of scandal. But at least the story is very surprising. And so what then should we think about the surprising genealogy of Jesus? How should we interpret the sin-laden family history of the Messiah? Clearly, Matthew was not eager to bury these unsavory stories, nor to cover the blemishes in the family history of Jesus. But to the contrary, he seems to draw attention to the scandal and to the surprising elements of Jesus' genealogy. He traces the generations of Jesus from Abraham through David, but he does so in this way, so as to highlight the blemishes. What are we to make of this? First of all, as we consider the genealogy of Jesus in general and the story of Judah and Tamar in particular, it is apparent that God's plan of salvation was accomplished despite the sinfulness of man. This is a theme that we have seen in the book of Genesis for some time now. God's plan of salvation was accomplished despite the sinfulness of man. And I think this is a very important observation. It's a very practical observation for us too, for it demonstrates that our God is able to bring about His plans and purposes in a messy world. He is able to accomplish His will, even while men and women rebel against Him. Our sins, though they be truly ours, and though they be truly sinful, do not frustrate the plans and purposes of God, thankfully. In the presence of Adam and Eve, it was announced that one of her seed would eventually come into the world to defeat the serpent who had deceived them. So from that first announcement of the gospel, the people of God awaited the arrival of this promised and anointed one, who we call the Messiah or the Christ. And we know that the Christ did not come into the world immediately. Instead, He was born in the fullness of time, to use the language of Paul in Galatians 4.4. 4. 
And he would descend not from a pure people, but from a mixed multitude, a a blemished people with a checkered past. Even the so-called good guys in the biblical narrative were not really good. Some of them had great faith, and in that respect they are to be emulated. But they were not without blemish. We are to remember Abraham and his flaws. We are to consider King David and his. We're to remember that Solomon was born to him by the wife of Uriah, for example, as Matthew points out. Now, I suppose that some might reason in this way, as they seek to apply this to their own lives. If God accomplishes His purposes despite my sin, then are my sins really so bad? And the answer to that question is, yes, they are really bad. And it's really bad that you're reasoning in that way, in fact. You're trying to justify your sins. So yes, your sins and my sins are truly heinous before God. Each one of them deserves the wrath of God. Our sins have terrible consequences in this life and in the life to come, which is why we must be washed by the blood of Christ and clothed in His righteousness by believing upon Him. And here I am not trying to minimize the heinousness of our sin, but I'm trying to magnify the greatness of our God, saying nothing can thwart His purposes or frustrate His plans. Nothing at all. Not even our rebellion against Him, nor the rebellion of angels. The story of Judah, the sons of Judah, and their relation to Tamar, it's truly scandalous. So scandalous is the story that I hesitate to go through it in great detail with small children present in the congregation. So I'm going to retell the story generally, and I'll leave it to you to contemplate the the details of of the text. Um, Judah already has a bad reputation in the Genesis narrative, brothers and sisters. Remember that Judah took part in the plan to kill his brother Joseph, being driven by jealousy. And remember also that it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery, seeing that they could make a profit while doing away with him. He's the one that suggested to his brothers, hey, let's, let's not kill him. Let's pull him out of the pit and sell him. At least we'll have some money. It is, uh, therefore, not surprising to learn in Genesis 38 that Judah's sons were wicked men. Wicked men do sometimes produce godly offspring. That does happen. But that is by the grace of God, isn't it? It is far more common, though, for the sons of wicked men to also be wicked, to repeat the sins of the fathers in some way. Notice that in verse 7, ere Judah's firstborn was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that the Lord put him to death. Uh, We're not told the nature of his wickedness, what it was that he was doing, but he was such a wicked man that that God Himself put him to death. Onan, Judah's secondborn, was also wicked. Instead of having intercourse with Tamar to raise up offspring by her, he went into her only for pleasure. Uh, This was wicked in the sight of the Lord, we are told. If he did not want to take Tamar as wife, he could have refused to do so. He did not have to take her as wife. But having taken her as wife, it was his duty to raise up offspring by her. And Onan did neither, notice. Instead, he took her as wife only to use her for pleasure. I think one thing needs to be taken into consideration when interpreting this little story within the story. And it's that significance of raising up offspring within Israel. Remember that to the serpent it was said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 With these words, the significance of offspring was established. 
God was going to provide a Savior to defeat the evil one, but He would come into the world through ordinary generation, through the offspring of Eve somehow. To Abraham it was said, To your offspring I will give this land, Genesis 12, 7. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, Genesis 13, 6. And yet again, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's something significant about the offspring of Abraham. Uh, Through Abraham, the nations of the earth would be blessed of the Lord. Through Abraham, the Christ would come. And so here it is clear that the offspring of Abraham would be of particular importance to the accomplishment of God's plan of salvation for the world. The promise was given to Eve at first. But what we are learning here in Genesis is that the promise was given particularly to Abraham and his descendants. So for the sons of Judah, who was a son of Abraham... For the sons of Judah to show such disregard for the responsibility and privilege of raising up offspring within Israel was especially wicked, I think. Clearly, Onan cared little about the promises of God given to his fathers. He cared only for physical pleasure. And in verse 10 of Genesis 38, we read, What Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Judah promised to give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar when he came of age. Uh, But he evidently was afraid to do so, thinking that he will die also. As if Tamar had anything to do with the death of his first two sons. Judah assumed, I guess, that she was bad luck. I don't know. Uh, That she perhaps was cursed, where in reality it was because his sons were wicked. And so he withheld his thirdborn. Now, though Tamar's methods were very questionable, I would say they were very sinful, in fact, she does come across as a kind of heroine in the Genesis narrative. She, unlike Judah and his sons, was eager to raise up offspring within Israel. If she did not care about offspring for Israel, I suppose that she could have went her way and taken a husband from her own people. She was probably a Canaanite. But instead, she waited for one of Judah's sons, She remained as a widow in her father's house for probably a long time. And when the third son was withheld, she deceived Judah to bring forth offspring by him. And so we might ask the question, is Tamar to be condemned or praised in this narrative? And I say, if only things were so black and white. What she did, her actions, they were sinful. But again, it appears that her desire to raise up offspring within Israel is to be Commended. It's to be contrasted with the sons of Judah who seem to care little for doing that very thing according to the promises of God. Judah, though, he comes off all bad in this story, doesn't he? He promised his thirdborn to Tamar but withheld him. He joined himself to what he thought was a prostitute while on a journey. Really, she was his daughter-in-law in disguise. And when his daughter-in-law was found to be with child, he ordered that she be put to death by burning. I mean, we're, we're, we're reading this and we're going... Wow, (laughs) the the hypocrisy of this man. But he was eventually put to open shame when Tamar presented his signet, his cord, and his staff, the very signet, cord, and staff that she had taken from him as a pledge of payment when she disguised herself as a prostitute. The signet was a ring with a seal on it. 
would have been easy to, easy to identify that it was Judah's. The cord was an ornamental cord probably used to bind Judah's cloak. The staff was obviously a walking stick. All of these were personal objects which would easily be recognized as belonging to Judah. And I think there is a bit of irony here in this text as there has been earlier in Genesis. Remember that Jacob deceived Isaac with a cloak and a goat. Do you remember that? And do you remember that Jacob's sons, including Judah, deceived him with a cloak and a goat, that coat of many colors, and it drenched in the blood of a goat. And now Judah is deceived by Tamar as she covers herself with the cloak of a prostitute and awaits the payment of a goat for her services. We notice that there's lots of deception taking place in the book of Genesis And it's ironic that the deception comes back to bite these men as they deceive their fathers. They too are deceived in due time. The turning point of this story is when Judah's hypocrisy is discovered. As Tamar was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet of the cord and the staff. Then Judah, being caught, identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again, we are told. I think this might have been a turning point, actually, in Judah's life. Not only is it the turning point in this narrative, but I think it might have been a turning point in Judah's life. Sometimes the Lord works in this way, doesn't He? In order to grow us, He first humbles us. Perhaps you've experienced that. In fact, if you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, I'm sure you have experienced it. That you've been humbled by the Lord, perhaps found to be in some sin. And through that, the Lord has brought about sanctification. It is interesting the way that the Lord has to break us sometimes, to do away with that pride and that self-centeredness before He can do a greater work within us. And I think That sort of thing happened here in Judah's life. And in chapter 43 of Genesis, I'm now looking ahead a few chapters, Judah's going to appear again in the Joseph story, but he seems there to be a changed man. Instead of cold-hearted and self-serving, which is what he is by Genesis 38, he appears there to be selfless and compassionate. There in Genesis 43, Jacob urges his son to go back up to Egypt to get food for the famine in the land was very severe. I hope you're familiar with the Joseph story at least a little bit. But Judah protested saying, the man, we know him to be Joseph now, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our, if you will send our brother with us, Judah says to, to his father, we will go down and buy you food, but if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with us. The brother being referenced is Benjamin, the youngest and the second born to Rachel. And as you know, Jacob would not let Benjamin go to Egypt for fear that he would lose him also, just as he had lost Joseph all those years earlier. But listen to how Judah responded to his father's hesitancy here. In chapter 43, verse 33, excuse me, 44, verse 33, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And 
We will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety, Judah says. All of a sudden, he is stepping up and offering to be a pledge for the safety of Benjamin, whereas before he cared nothing at all for the safety of Joseph. From my hand you shall require him, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. This is different. It's a change that has taken place within Judah. And when Joseph threatened to keep Benjamin, it was Judah who pleaded with the boy and offered to be held captive instead. Uh, listen here in 44.33. My verses are off. Before it was 43.3. Now it is 44.33. Uh, here is what Judah says to Joseph. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Again, a very different man from the one that we encountered, encountered in the previous chapter and in this one. Instead of cold-hearted and selfish, concerned not at all for his brother Joseph nor for the feelings of his father, here Judah, he is willing to give himself up as a substitute for Benjamin. So that Benjamin might go back home and see his father and his father be comforted by that relationship. Uh, it seems to me that one of the reasons for this story of the wickedness of Judah that is told here in Genesis 38 is to help set the stage for the radical transformation that took place within Judah. We started the Joseph story last week and now all of a sudden we have Genesis 38. What is this doing here? Why this scandalous story? I think one of the reasons it is here is to set the stage for what will follow so that we might understand the transformation that took place within uh, Judah's life. We will appreciate the light of Judah's transformation much more now that it is set against this dark backdrop of Judah's hard-hearted and self-centered way of life. How did he change? Well, here we we get some insight into how he changed. He was caught in his wickedness. He was publicly humiliated and he had to be brought to that place of saying, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Brothers and sisters, Jesus the Christ is known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Think about that for a moment. Think about that, and, and now that you know the truth about Judah's character in the beginning, isn't it apparent that God is able to accomplish His purposes despite our sin? God is able to use that which is evil for good? How exactly He does this, I cannot say. Uh, His ways are mysterious. But that He does it is clear. All of the wickedness that we see in the world does not frustrate the plans and purposes of God. And I believe that this should encourage us greatly as we press on in this world so as to not lose heart. There is evil in the world, but God is sovereign still. Secondly, as we consider the genealogy of Jesus in general and the story of Judah and Tamar in particular, it is apparent that God's plan of redemption was accomplished because of God's love for sinful man. When the scriptures say, for God so loved the world, it should astonish us. If we have eyes to see the world around us, and if we have even read the scriptures themselves, this declaration, for God so loved the world, should astonish us. It should astonish us that God, that is God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, who is radiant in glory and unblemished in his purity, 
would set his love upon sinful and fallen creatures such as you and me. Why would he do this? How could it be that he would do this? Should be our response. And I believe that stories like this one about Judah, his sons, and their treatment of Tamar are meant in part to convince us of our unworthiness before God. These stories are to magnify the grace of God. They demonstrate His mercy. They make it crystal clear that the love that He has shown to the world by providing a Savior through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is undeserved. It is by His grace alone. When John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, it does not mean that God has set His love upon all human beings equally and without distinction as the Arminians and the Semi-Pelagians say. To interpret the passage that way would make the text to contradict all of those passages about unconditional election and predestination that are found in the New Testament. To interpret the passage that way would set John 3 against John 6 and 17 to make them contradict one another. And to interpret the passage in that way ignores the way that John and every other biblical author uses the word world. The word world stands for all the peoples of the earth, that is to say all nations. And the word world also has moral connotations. It is often used to describe a world that is plagued by sin. When John says, for God so loved the world, he intends for us to be astonished at the thought that God Almighty would bother to set his love upon wicked people such as you and me, so as to redeem a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Tamar was a Canaanite, as I've already said. And yet God determined to use her to accomplish His purposes for the redemption of the world. There's, there's, little, there's little bits and pieces in the Old Testament narrative where non-Jewish people, Canaanites, are used in profound and powerful ways to bring about God's plan of redemption for the world. And I think every time we see that, we're to be reminded that from the beginning, this has always been about more than just ethnic Israel. But rather, God's purposes are to bless the nations through Abraham. That is why sometimes Gentiles are used significantly in the carrying out of God's purposes of redemption. Judah and Tamar were sinful and yet God advanced His program of redemption through them. Judah bore Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and from Perez Jesus the Christ would be brought into the world. And so clearly God's plan of redemption was accomplished because of His love for sinful man, and not because of our merit. He owes nothing at all to us, friends, except His righteous judgment. Instead, He has shown mercy and grace. Stories like this one in Genesis 38 help us to see that ever more clearly. Thirdly and lastly, as we consider the genealogy of Jesus in general and the story of Judah and Tamar in particular, I think it is apparent that God's plan of redemption was accomplished by the Son of God coming in the likeness of sinful man. I'm sure you have noticed, and perhaps you're growing a bit tired of it, uh, but I have been reading a lot of genealogies as of late, haven't I? And sometimes I really struggle with the names. You've also noticed that. I think I switched the way I pronounce names in that genealogy um, many times as I read it. Uh, but why do the Scriptures contain so many genealogies? Have you ever stopped to ask the question? Uh, you know, 
was God just being merciful to his people to give them something to read when they're trying to go to sleep at night, we might say. Is that it? Why these genealogies? In Genesis, uh, the very beginning of Matthew's gospel contains one. Where does he begin? Genealogies. Isn't there something more important for you to get on to and to open with? You're supposed to open with a hook, by the way, if you're a preacher or a writer. But what does Matthew do? A genealogy. Well, they're there because they're very significant. They're very significant to the story of God's the plan of redemption. The answer to the question, why so many genealogies, is that God's plan of salvation would be accomplished by one who was truly human, by one who would be born truly human in a certain line, in a certain descent. The Savior of the world would be the seed of Eve. He would be the son of Abraham and David. Perez is mentioned here because through him the Christ would be born into the world. And that is what we are celebrating during this Christmas season. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus the Christ. He was born into the world at the perfect time and according to the will of God. According to the New Testament scriptures and in fulfillment to the old, He was truly human. He was a man, the son of Abraham. And yet He was also truly divine, the eternal Son of God. He was truly human because He came to redeem humans from their sin. He was born into this world a human so that He might live for humans, die for humans, raise for humans. If redemption was to be accomplished for the sons and daughters of Adam, it required that one from Adam's race accomplish that salvation by the keeping of God's law and the bearing of the penalty that rests upon Adam's posterity. He had to be truly man, and He was. And all of these genealogies that we consider ultimately are pointing forward to the Christ who came, who was born of woman at just the right time. And yet it was also required that the Savior be divine, for no mere human could possibly keep God's law now that the race is fallen into sin. No mere human could possibly bear the weight of the sins of all of God's elect no mere human could possibly raise himself from the dead, thus winning the victory over the evil one. Were he merely human, he could not have accomplished any of these things any more than you and I could choose to accomplish these things, being fallen into sin. Friends, Jesus the Christ was both the son of Perez, born to Judah by Tamar, and he was also the eternal son of God. He assumed a true human nature. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh so that He might provide salvation for you and me. And this is the thing that we are to not forget this Christmas season. But we are to rejoice that God would love us so. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the grace and mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus. As we read the scriptures, we are confronted with the severity of, of our sin. As we look at the world around us, we see it. And as we look into our own hearts and minds, we see it there also. Father, I pray that this Christmas season, as we fix our minds for a time upon the birth of Christ and the incarnation, that we would be astonished that you would love the world so. That you would provide a Savior for us in the way that You did. Uh, God, we are humbled by this. 
we confess to you that in and of ourselves we are helpless. We thank you for your love. I do pray, Father, that if we have not yet believed upon Christ, if there are any here who have not, that they would. That they would cry out to you and pray for the forgiveness of sins as they turn from their sin, Lord. I pray that it would be so. Father, for those who are in Christ, who have faith in Him, Lord, help us to walk ever more faithfully. Change our hearts, Lord. Continue that work within us, that work of sanctification, whereby we are made more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, help us put those besetting sins to death truly, and to live for You and for Your glory always. Father, do this for us, we pray, for our good and Your glory. In the name of Christ, we ask these things, and all of God's people say, Amen.